0: Everybody and uh, welcome back to another episode of the Heart of Flesh podcast. Thank you for tuning in and listening. Um, I am joined by a new guest today. Uh, I, I'm joined by one of the pastors at uh, the church that Josh and I go to, River City Church in Fargo. Uh, his name is Devin Hiller. He is also the one who kind of orchestrated and um, put together the the seminary program that Joshua and I are in, and he also oversees it and kind of kind of runs it so we're super thankful for him he's been a big kind of mentor in both of our lives I'm glad to have him on the show today or on, on the podcast today um, and if you guys are ever wondering you know if there's a, if there's times when we uh, a long time between episodes it's usually because we're really busy and that's usually because devin has assigned us a lot of homework um, <laughs> so that that's a big reason why but we're super thankful for Devin and we're glad to have him on. Uh, Devin, you want to just introduce yourself quick?
1: Yeah, I think you, you said it well, it's a joy to be with you today, Jackson, my dear brother. I uh, love getting to spend time with you guys at RCI. Uh, I also love giving you guys a lot of homework. <laughs> brings me joy. i uh, glad to be here. Glad to talk about reform theology. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yep. So, uh, Maybe just to, to catch you up, Devin, and just to give a recap kind of on um, what's been leading up to this point. We've been, we did a four-episode part 4 episode series on, on the gospel and some of the really foundational things about the gospel. So, for example, how the gospel, um, like the role that it has in, in the Christian life, the way the apostles viewed it. Uh, we talked about how, how Jesus, like so much of his preaching, you know, like in Mark 1, it talks about how, you know, he began to preach the gospel of the, of the kingdom. Um, and we talked about also some of the, you know, what the gospel is and some of the foundations of it, that God is, is holy and the man is sinful and this is a problem, uh, that there must be atonement made for, for man to be right with God. Um, you know, we talked about how, how Jesus accomplishes this by his life, his death, resurrection, um, and then how the Spirit applies this work of salvation to us. Uh, and the word that we're born again. Um, and and made new, so so those are kind of, if you will, those are kind of gospel foundations, right? But there are, there are there remains some, uh, perhaps you know, deeper questions that, that are that are kind of left unanswered, um, that are kind of left, you know, as we go go through all of that. There's some deeper questions that remain. Um, for example, you know, we talk about, and the Bible makes this clear, it, it, that if salvation is by grace, if it's an unmerited gift of God, right, right, it is, uh, this is something that God does, then uh, the question ultimately arises, you know, what, what is the role of, of man in this salvation? What, or, or rather, what distinguishes um, a a believer from an unbeliever? Why, why is there some that believe? Why is there some that don't believe? Mm -hmm. Uh, Maybe a related question, how much has sin actually affected man and and does does a sinner have the cap- capacity within himself to turn from his sin and to trust god and to be saved you know another another kind of a deeper question or, or maybe you know we talk about the spirit of god if the spirit if a person has the spirit of god has been born again can that person lose their salvation mm. or, or what does that what does that really mean to have the spirit so, so those are just a couple examples of, of some questions that have been left unanswered that, that the Bible does provide answers to, and that we want to um, kind of go on to, to show in this next part of our series. And some of those questions, you know, they have been controversial questions throughout ch- church history. They're controversial today. There's some different ways to answer those questions um, and some different schools of thought on how all of this exactly works. Um, but so what we're going to be doing on this, on this podcast is we're going to be defending, well, we're we're going to give an answer to those questions and we're going to be defending, um, what, what we're going to call the reformed view on that, on, on that issue or on some of those issues. So, um, you know, if, if you maybe the term reformed theology is probably not familiar to some of you. Um, when we think about specifically reformed theology and, and salvation, it's often referred to as uh, the, the the Calvinistic view. You know, the the prominent, really the prominent um, debate, really the two schools of thought that that a lot of these things boil down to is the the Calvinist and the Arminian view. Mm-hmm. So we're going to be defending the reformed view. Which is the Calvinist view, which some people would also refer to as the Augustinian view. Augustine being, you know, really a fifth-century uh, church leader, massive influence that taught uh, something very, very similar to the Re- to the Reformed view. So, you know, with that, kind of kind of before we do that, and what that what that's really going to be is if if you're familiar, we're going to be defending the five points of Calvinism. Uh, that, that's kind of where this is going, which is really a part of Reformed theology in general, right? That's kind of the context which, uh, you know, the five points of Calvinism arise out of is Reformed theology. So to do that, the first, one of the first things we wanted to do is to kind of discuss and, and define and give some historical context behind what is Reformed theology. Exactly, so you know, Devin. I'll open this up and ask you a little bit. When we think about um, defining reform theology and what it is, there's there's a lot of historical context to that. So I'm I'm going to let you go ahead and answer that question um, a little bit. What is where where does reform theology come from? Um, what what is it that we need to know about it? Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, I think. The first thing I wanna say before we dive into the history of this is it's important to understand the distinction between uh, Reformed theology and and Calvinism. Mm-hmm. When we talk about, at least the way it's generally taught and talked about, Calvinism is focusing on just one aspect of Reformed theology, which is the, the theology or the study of salvation, soteriology. Uh, but Reformed theology is actually a way bigger Bucket. So when we talk about Calvinism versus Arminianism, we're just talking about one little aspect of Reformed theology as a whole. And Reformed theology as a whole comes out of the Reformation, which is where the name Reformed comes from. And there's a lot that happened during the Reformation. Uh, yeah, there's,
0: a, there's a lot that happened leading up to the Reformation too. Yeah, right. That's and, exactly right. You know, we don't have a <coughs> time to cover all of that. It's really fascinating. Um, you know, one thing, Devin, that uh we've been assigned this semester that's been really fun Is church is studying a lot of church history and it's been specifically covering the time um from the New Testament up into the ref- up until the Reformation so that's been really good but Devin I cut you off you can you can continue
1: yeah no that's good it's it the Reformation there was a context of the Reformation and without going into every single detail the main things that were going on was At the time, uh, I'm thinking late 1400s, early 1500s, the Roman Catholic Church was the main church, uh, uh, really the only church uh, if you were uh, a a Christian. And there were some, some major false teaching, if you wanna call it that, that was going on, and it really all started well, there was a things, There were people leading up to it, but we say that the Reformation started with uh, Martin Luther when he nailed the 95 Theses to the church door in Wittenberg in uh, 1517. And the reason, well, there's a lot of reasons why he did that, but the two main things that were going on that really drove Luther was what is our ultimate authority? Is it the church? or is it scripture? And the other thing is justification, which is how are we declared right in the eyes of God? How are we saved? And uh, the the Roman Catholic Church would say that you're saved uh, by faith plus works. Faith in Christ plus works equals salvation. And Luther came to this realization after studying uh, the New Testament in the original language, Greek, in specifically Romans and it the Lord just brought it to his heart that we are saved we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone but that faith alone is never uh, naked or truly alone if you have faith alone in Christ alone you're, that will equal salvation plus works yep. so just to put it together the Roman Catholic Church taught that faith plus works equals salvation and Luther was saying no Faith equals salvation plus works. If you want to put it in, yeah, works in are
0: works are the are the fruit of faith, right? Yeah, if they they come, um, they come as a result of a true and genuine faith. And so, you know, like like you mentioned, Devin, there's there's much that leads up to this time, and and, and the reformers and, and even people before them, people like John Wycliffe and uh, mm-hmm. Hus. And, and yep, John Hoos. and there there's just there there comes to be much corruption within the church, uh, slowly and kind of throughout church history, some traditions grow and some, some, uh, you know, you know, the, 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 papacy begins to gain power and there's a lot of corruption, um, in the papacy in the bishops and a lot of things like that. And it became clearer and clearer that there was need for reform in the church. And when the reformers came upon this situation, um, like Luther, for example, his goal wasn't necessarily to branch off from the church. It was to bring reform to the church. But it became pretty pretty clear shortly after, you know, L- Luther, Luther posted his um, objections to certain doctrine and practice. And it became pretty clear that the Roman church wasn't going to re- re- repent of them or recant of them or take them back. And, and what they actually did was they would excommunicate uh, the reformers and... It just it just became obvious that there was there was no way for uh, re- reform to really happen in the church, um, and so what you see is um, reforming movements around Europe that are looking actually to go back to the scriptures and to see what the scriptures are teaching, um, and to to base their Christian life on the authority of the Bible and the teachings of the Bible, and you you see like a major you see a major um, importance given to preaching again and to preaching the scriptures specifically. And, you know, there's kind of, there, there's kind of a few uh, different, you know, you know, there's a lot that happens at, at the Reformation. There's a lot going on at that point. Really, and I've heard this, this was maybe a good analogy from a, a church history professor um, that I was listening to, but you can kind of boil these things down into like really three movements. You have the Lutheran movement, um, you have the Reformed movement, um, and you have the uh, Anabaptist movement. Now, now the Lutheran and the Reformed movement, like Luther, for example, is going to be in the exact same camp in terms of soteriology or salvation as the Reformed tradition with with Zwingli and Calvin um, and some others. Like like Luther actually writes more about that than even Calvin does. Um, but but Luther really has. Luther and and Zwingli and Calvin kind of differ over, specifically the Lord's Supper is kind of the big one and how that sacrament kind of looks and and operates. Mm -hmm. But maybe this is a helpful example for understanding the the Reformation. I found it helpful. But when you come to this point in time, uh, the the church and and the traditions that had been just kind of gathering and being built up in the church, it's almost like a, a junk drawer. So if you have a junk drawer at home, you just throw everything in there. It's random. You got a bunch of stuff. So what Luther did is he saw some, some specific problems that really bothered him that he didn't like and he didn't think you know fit with scripture. So Luther opens up the junk drawer, he sees the things that really bother him, he takes them out, and he shuts shuts the door again. So for example, like justification, that was Luther's big, uh, that that was his big point. How are we? How is it? How can mankind be sinful man be righteous before God? How can we be saved? So Luther. And actually, Luther's much more of a traditionalist than they give him credit for. Like he really wasn't looking just to do something new or to do away with church tradition or anything like that. So he kind of opens the drawer, takes out the things he doesn't like, shuts it again. And you know, the Lutheran Church you, you see even today there's still a lot of traditional uh, liturgical type type stuff in there. The reform the reform tradition um, take looks at that junk, junk drawer. They open it up, they take everything out. They look at it. They look at it in the light of Scripture, and then uh, the things that that align with Scripture they put back in. The things that don't they throw away, and then they shut the door again, right? And you know the third movement that you really have is the Anabaptist movement, and you know maybe this is a little bit humorous, but the professor said what they did is they took the drawer out, they put it in the garbage, and they burned the whole thing. Hmm. So so they w- were making a, a big big break with any sort of tradition, any sort of I do, and I think I think actually that analogy is helpful and when we think about Reformed theology and the way they view church the way that church tradition is is viewed, obviously we still view the Bible as an ultimate authority. And if you've listened to this podcast, we have tried to hammer that point home. We we believe that the Bible is the ultimate authority. But when we, we can look at church history and certain traditions in the church and we can be helped by them. Like we can you know, we, we can look, especially at teachers that have that have gone before us. We, we can look at that. Uh, we can see what the church historically has believed, and and, and weigh it against scripture, and it can be a helpful thing to us. And it's and it's actually it's important for us to understand the history of the church. So, you know, that that's maybe some some background about uh, the Protestant Reformation in general. But as I mentioned. And Devin, you know, you can help fill on th- fill in on this a little bit, but reform theology really—I mean, you, you could probably really chase it back, trace it back to Zwingli, one of the early reformers um, in, in Switzerland—and but it's 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 really synonymous with the teaching of John Calvin. Mm-hmm. Um, but Zwingli and Calvin would have would have landed pretty similarly on a lot of the issues and started, um, you know, you know their reforming movements grew and grew and grew all over Europe, and Calvin was a prolific writer and preacher um, and just expositor of the Bible, and, uh, you know, I think a lot of people today, when they think of John Calvin, they think of one thing that, you know, they they think of Calvinism and want to limit uh, the work of John Calvin specifically just to Calvinism, Mm -hmm. where Calvin was really seeking to teach the whole Bible um, and to to explain it. I don't know. Is there anything you want to add to that, Devin?
1: Yeah, I think uh, Calvin really got a bad rap, even historically and even today, about um, his doctrine of predestination, which we're going to talk here, Lord willing, in the next episode. Uh, We'll we'll define and describe that. Um, But he really gets a bad rap for only, like, People claim that he's only about predestination. But if you really read his stuff, and, and if you want to know all of what Calvin believed, you got to go to the Institutes. And in the Institutes, uh, I believe he has about 60-some pages dedicated to predestination. And in my copy, it's two volumes, 1,800 pages. So you can right. see there that uh, he believed in predestination, uh, but he believed in way more than that. Uh, it it like you said the whole council of god and so i think it's also important to note here that the first time that the term calvinism was used was towards the end of calvin's life and it was actually a derogatory term because of his view on the lord's supper because there was there was there was clash between the lutherans and uh, the reformed tradition over uh, their views of the lord's supper and so the The um, Lutherans—I can't remember specifically who coined the term Calvinism to Mm -hmm. like—it was really a derogatory term against their view of the the Lord's Supper.
0: Um, That's interesting. So, so Calvinism (coughs) today is usually synonymous with nothing to do with that, but synonymous with specifically Calvin's teaching on on salvation and what it looked like, Um, which is interesting. And and you know, you could argue it's probably still sometimes used as a. Derogatory term today. Calvinism is definitely not the popular, popular view. But uh, we are going to defend it. We're going to defend the reformed view uh, of salvation here, not Calvinism per se. Um, but the way we're going to do this, you know, we're we're we're, <laughs> we're not just looking at what what Calvin's teaching, but we're gonna we're gonna look at, at what the scriptures teach, and we're gonna argue from the scriptures. Um, and you know, that that's really what Calvin was seeking to do as well. You know, I, or go ahead.
1: Yeah, I just want to add a point there. And what you said about the scriptures is the foundation of the Reformation. Like I said earlier, that they, Luther and others, wanted to go back to the authority of the scriptures. And so the foundation of all of Reformed theology, not just soteriology, which is the study of salvation, but Mm -hmm. all of Reformed theology comes back to the doctrine of sola scriptura. Uh, And that is just a Latin, and it means scripture alone. And the formal definition of that is the Bible alone is the word of God and only infallible rule of faith and practice. So the Bible alone is the word of God to the church, and it is the only infallible. Infallible means that it cannot err. It's the only infallible rule for the church, for faith. That is what we should believe and practice. That is how we should live. And that was in stark contracts to the Roman Catholic Church it's a little bit confusing if you read it, but because they put uh, church tradition and scripture on the same level, but functionally the church has authority to interpret and to apply scripture. Yeah.
0: And that, that, you know, the, the scripture alone is an authority. That's really a, that that's really in opposition to the Roman Catholic view of church tradition, Mm -hmm. uh, which holds the same authority um, in, in their view as, as scripture. And, uh, really, you know, you know, the way they teach it, I believe, is that it, it it came from the apostles and was passed down to the church, not in writing. And, I think that's problematic in a number of ways. One, so many of the, the traditions there came clearly at a much later date in history. Um, and also, like, the, yeah, it's just, it's just problematic. When, when God is God has made has made clear in the scriptures um, that it is His Word that, that we have apostolic teaching, uh, that we have first person eyewitness accounts of Jesus and His life and His teaching and His ministry, um, and, and we have apostolic interpretation as well of the Old Testament. Um, and and you know we talked about this in our in our uh, series on on the Bible in general. But Paul, the way Paul talks about Scripture is that it is sufficient for Um, salvation and for godly living, Mm -hmm. that it provides everything that we need to know about salvation and godly living and that it is an ultimate authority for God's people. So yeah, that, that so much of the reformed movement is, is based on that principle that the scriptures are the authority over the church uh, that we are to, 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 to bow in authority to what God has said through his word. And that defines our theology and that defines our practice. So I, I think, you know, I want to, I want to mention one more thing about Calvin quick, and then maybe we'll go and uh, define some of the, maybe some of the hallmark hallmarks of reformed theology uh, and some of just the, the, the primary teaching. So one thing, one thing about Calvin, obviously Calvin is a Bible guy. Uh, Calvin believes that the Bible is the ultimate authority. That that's part of, of, uh, that's a huge part of the Reformation. But Calvin and the rest of the Reformers, they did not believe that they were doing something new. They did not believe that um, what they were doing had no no roots in church history. And you can really see that when uh, you, if you read the Institute, which I actually, I haven't, uh, I, I hope too soon. And, and if you've, if you're not sure what the institutes are, it's kind of Calvin's systematic theology. It's, it's a big book um, where he is just trying to lay out uh, the theology of the Bible and just theology in general. But one thing that Calvin does in his institutes, um, actually, I think this was, this was in all of his writings. Um, somebody, somebody took the time to look at all of Calvin's writings and to count the number of times that he quotes from early church fathers. So from people after the apostolic period and before Calvin's day. Um, so, so, you know, people from really, really like hundred AD um, until, you know, you know, th- that, kind of period early in the church, the first couple hundred years of the church, we often refer to those people as the church fathers. Somebody took the time to count the quotations that Calvin had to the church fathers. And, you know, you, you can see from it, Calvin is like, he is, he is like an expert in the Church Fathers. Like, he, he has studied them really, really deeply and a lot. In his writing, he quotes Augustine. If you're not familiar with Augustine, we mentioned him earlier. He is maybe the most influential theologian, in, in one of them in Church history, and he was a 5th century uh, bishop in the city of Hippo. But he quotes from Augustine 1,708 times in, in his writings. 1,708. And if you think about, you know, you think about the way Calvin describes salvation, Augustine was doing that long before Calvin or any, the other reformers ever did. And, and some people in between the times were doing that as well. Um, Augustine and some of these issues, these questions that are, that are involved, really come to the surface um, with the person of Augustine as he writes against a guy named Pelagius in, in the fourth or fifth century, where these issues are really being debated, uh, you know what is the role of man in salvation? Well, you know the the Bible talks about predestination. What does that mean? And, and Augustine um, is one is a, a prominent writer on this topic and has a very ha, has something very similar to the Reformed view. And sometimes people will refer to to that actually as the Augustinian view because he's really one of the first to really give expression to it. Obviously, besides, um, you know, we're going to argue clearly Jesus teaches this and Paul does and the other apostles do as well. But as far as church history goes, Augustine is one of the major uh, factors in understanding this. So so Calvin quotes from Augustine sev- over 1,700 times. He quotes from Jerome, a contemporary of Augustine, 332 times. From John Chrysostom, he quotes 259 times from Gregory the Great, he quotes 179 times, Ambrose 133, Tertullian 122, Cyprian 121, uh, Peter Lombard, he quotes 89 times. So you just see, you see the, you see the breadth of, of uh, Calvin's reading of the church fathers and his understanding of them. So so, so he he clearly doesn't believe that he's, he's doing something different, but that he's actually in line with what has been the Orthodox, Views of the church um, and, and what what is actual biblical teaching, um, and I and I, I think that's that's often not understood um, about the Protestant Reformation is that they, they did not believe they were doing something new, uh, but returning to something that that was old and actually what was true. Mm-hmm. So, as we as we think about Reformed theology and some of the uh, hallmarks of it that really come down to us today from the Protestant Reformation, from the teaching of Calvin, from Zwingli, um, a lot of, a lot of the teachings from Luther, other major factors that, that have been held in the reformed church that is well, oh, in Protestant churches that have spread across the globe. Um, s- some of the, some of the major um, hallmarks of reformed theology uh, f- to start with are the five solas and Devin, you mentioned one of them earlier. Um, but, but the five solas kind of summarize, in a very short way, Reformed theology and the hallmarks of it. And sola is just a Latin word. Uh, and, and in this case, it means, I don't know, only or alone. Mm-hmm. So one of them, and really the fountainhead of, of all of Reformed theology, is sola scriptura, which means that the Bible alone is the authority, the ultimate authority for all doctrine and practice in the church so when we think about um what we are supposed to believe about god what we are supposed to believe about ourselves what we're supposed to believe about the world how we're supposed to live in the world how we're supposed to live in light of what god has done how the church is supposed to function and operate and look where we turn to answers ultimately is the scriptures the scriptures are the things that or the scripture is what teaches us that. And it, and it is the the authority in the church. Devin, is there anything you want to maybe add to any of that?
1: Yeah, I, I love the way you said that. And uh, thinking particularly about the five solas, this is the foundation of Reformed theology, these five solas, and I'll name them here in a second. Also, this is the foundation of biblical Christianity. And... Before we even get to the conversation of Calvinism versus Arminianism, I would go so far as to say that if you don't believe the five solas, you're probably not a Christian. And here, these these are the five solas. So, sola scriptura, that is the Bible alone. Solus Christus, which means that Jesus Christ is the only savior of sinners, and his atoning sacrifice is sufficient to save them.
0: Yep. So you can think, uh, scripture alone, and then solus Christus, Christ alone. Yep.
1: Yeah. So I guess maybe I'll, I'll put all five of them together like this. We are saved by grace alone through faith alone in Christ alone to the glory of God alone, and we knew that we know that through the Scriptures alone. Yeah. So those are the five solas. So we're saved by grace alone. That is sola gratia. That is our salvation is not earned in any part. It is the free gift of God from start to finish. So we're saved by grace alone, uh, by faith alone, which is sola fide, we are, which means we are forgiven our sins and counted righteous in God's sight solely by trusting in Christ. So we're saved by faith alone. So we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, which is solus Christus. I just mentioned that, uh, so I won't go into it again. And all of this, so grace alone, by faith alone, through, uh, through faith in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, which is solideo gloria, which means that the ultimate end of all of God's works in creation and redemption is his own glory alone. I uh, will maybe talk about this later, I'm not sure if it'll come up, but when we start talking about the Westminster Confession of Faith, there's a very famous, uh, or excuse me, the, the shorter catechism, it's a very famous mm-hmm. question, very famous first question and answer. What is the chief end of man? man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. Yeah. And so we know all of this by, by Scripture alone. So that's how all that's the foundation of biblical Christianity and is the foundation of Reformed theology.
0: Yeah, and that's much of that is, you know, tied into, um, you know, the, 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 I'm thinking about the gospel series we just went through, and so much of the foundations of the gospel you know, are, are made clear in Reformed theology. You know, like you said, we are saved by grace alone. Um, you know, we talked about how, in Paul's view of salvation, there is no room for boasting. There is no room for human boasting. We are saved by the grace of God alone, um, which, is, which is a free gift of God. We're saved through faith alone. It's, it's our faith, apart from our works, that saves us, and it is in Christ alone. Christ is the only Savior, um, and, and it's His life, death, uh, atonement, resurrection that actually accomplishes our salvation. And, and you know, think of, like, John 14:6. If anyone is to come to the Father, you know it, it comes through me. Je- Jesus is the the one mediator between God and man, and all of that, uh, like you said, solely Deo Gloria is to the glory of God alone. So by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. Uh, that that is, and, and the foundation of that is is the Scriptures alone, and that that is a brief a brief summary of Reformed theology, and, and that essentially, you know, it, at, at that time, it is, well, and still, is standing against differing positions within the Roman Catholic Church and Roman Catholic theology. Um, but but those, those five solas uh, are, you know, a very quick summary uh, to describe the essence of Reformed theology. Um, some other, maybe some other hallmarks, um, when people think of, well, of Calvinism, obviously, but but Reformed theology in general, uh, you know, there, there's an emphasis on the sovereignty of God, uh, and when we read the scriptures, we come away with clearly a sovereign God who is in control, who, who works out um, the flow of history according to His sovereign will, um, and, and Reformed theology really clearly brings that out, and... and um, like really champions the idea of the sovereignty of God. That God not only possesses the right to uh, act in His creation to accomplish His will, but that He actually exercises that right. And you know, you know, at, at the same time, you know, Reformed theology extols the the sovereignty of God without reducing the responsibility of man in that. So God is is sovereign. And yet man is responsible for what he does, the way that he lives. He has moral responsibility for the way that he acts towards God uh, and for the way that he acts towards his creatures. And yet, um, you know, we, we see examples in the scriptures that, that God, ultimately there, there, is, there is nothing that, that happens that is outside the scope of, of God's will and God's purposes there's nothing that that happens now. God, of course, doesn't. You know. You know. We think about, for example, you think about uh, sin in the world and evil things that happen, and certainly, you know, the, the scriptures uh, make clear to us that God does not make anybody sin. Um, that God, uh, yeah, God, God does not make anyone sin. People sin. People do things according to their own nature, um, according to their own desires. We are free to to choose. Uh, to 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 make moral decisions as we please, but ultimately God is um sovereign over history, sovereign over his creation, and he he accomplishes what he wills in the world and, and perhaps that is most most clearly seen in the cross of christ mm-hmm. uh and you know the one of the one of the uh most most obvious examples of this in the Bible is um you know we think about the crucifixion of Christ and Peter in acts two he makes this uh, statement. He says that you know they were, they were praying to God, and he says, God, um, I can't remember how exactly what it was, but we, we we praise you, whatever for for what has happened to Jesus was according to your predetermined plan. Mm-hmm. Was according to your predetermined plan. But or no, he's talking to the to the Israelites, um, and, and he he blames them. You know, maybe I should just turn there. Actually, that's probably helpful. Usually better than just paraphrasing. But you know, just in, in Reformed theology we th- we think about the sovereignty of God, um and what that looks like and human responsibility, and those are some those are some serious questions. Um and it, it maybe it's sometimes difficult for, for us to understand that. Uh Devin, do you know where that passage is at? Yeah. I'm two, of? Two 20 th-
1: Acts two twenty three.
0: Okay, thank you. Yeah, here we go.
1: And also uh four twenty eight.
0: Yeah. A few examples. So so Peter says, Men of Israel, this is 2, 4, 2.22. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So you see, you see for example, in there, that Jesus was, was delivered up to be crucified by the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Uh, you think of Isaiah 53, it was the will of the Lord to crush him. It was God's purpose that Jesus would come and accomplish salvation. And yet, at the same time, Peter holds clearly responsible the, the, the people and their wicked actions that crucified Jesus. Uh, they, they did this out of um, the wicked intents of their heart. Even though God, God sent Jesus for this purpose, it was also uh, the responsibility of the people who actually perpetrated this act and actually crucified Jesus. So what, what we see in the Bible is two things that perhaps are difficult for us to understand and grasp and to see together, but we see the sovereignty of God on the one hand, and very clearly we see the responsibility of people on the other hand. Uh, and both of those things work together and both and both of them are true and it's not necessarily our job to understand exactly how this works and exactly how this can make sense but we are to affirm what the scriptures teach about it and, and we see that clearly in reformed theology holds up the sovereignty of god and the responsibility uh, the moral responsibility of human creatures um, in their in their decisions so yeah th- that you know, you know, the sovereignty of God is, is one of the hallmarks of reformed theology for sure. Um, the five solas are a good summary. I, you know, I, you really think too about like covenant theology, for example, yeah, I was thinking um, covenant, is, is, theology. covenant theology, is especially, uh, synonymous with reformed theology. Um, yeah, I don't know. Devin, if you, if you have anything else to add,
1: I think you explained it well. Uh, I was just thinking in terms of God's sovereignty, Acts one eleven says it very clearly, that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. Ephesians, okay. Ephesians 1.11. Oh, what did I say? Galatians? You said Acts. I said, oh yep. yeah. okay, all right. <laughs> Ephesians one eleven. thank you yep. for clarifying that. And, and w- yeah, so we, we hold together God's sovereignty and human human moral responsibility. And one of, one of the ways, one of the things Reformed theology believes is that God uses means to accomplish his ends. So he's sovereign over the ends, which are are like the goal and his purposes. But he's also sovereign over the means. That is what he uses to accomplish his purposes. Um, But we're still responsible for the means. And so I think, you know, maybe we'll get into this in the next episode. But one misunderstanding of Calvinism is that um, people say that we don't believe in evangelism. But that's clearly not true because scripture commands us to go and share the gospel, but that's just an example of God uses the means of us sharing the gospel with others to accomplish his ends. That is salvation. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah. So that's, hopefully hopefully that's a helpful summary. Um, and again, I just want to reiterate that we, you know, we, we, we want to answer some of these difficult questions. We believe that the Bible does it and we're going to defend, um, the reformed view of salvation. When we try to press into those questions, and when we try to answer them, and really, kind of where we're going with this is we're gonna, we're gonna, we're gonna jump um, from this into a series, and, and we're gonna try to walk through the doctrines of grace, or sorry. Uh, often, oh Siri, often referred to as the um, five points of Calvinism. So that is that is kind of where we're going, but I think it's important. To, it's important to understand a bit the historical context of this, um, also just under understanding the Protestant Reformation, uh, understanding the historical roots of Reformed theology in general, and uh, that that I think just provides a helpful foundation and basis for for kind of where we're going. Now, the last thing I'm going to mention, and then we'll wrap this up. Uh, if you're looking for you know, if you're, if you're still questioning what, what necessarily is Reformed theology, what does it look like, um, and, you know, we've made mention of this before, but if, if there's a few good places I can think of that uh, express well um, the essence of Reformed theology. So, like, Devin, you mentioned the Westminster Confession of Faith, and that uh, that actually came about in the, in the 17th century, in the 1600s, I believe, yep. but... Um, is a result of the Reformed movement in England. Uh, and they, they got together and put together, you know, a, an expression of Reformed theology that has been widely accepted um, by, by many churches and, and Reformed denominations. Um, so, so the Westminster Confession of Faith is is an example. And, and you can read that online. You know, they even have one in modern English. If, uh, you know, Old English can be a little bit difficult. But that that is one expression of Reformed theology. Also, I'm thinking of, uh, you know, the London Baptist Confession. Um, that is another uh confession that would capture well the um that would capture well reformed theology. Uh you know, the difference between those two, Westminster and the Baptist confession obviously being uh, the sacrament of baptism. Um, you know, Baptists believing that that it is uh baptism is rightly administered upon profession of of faith and in and in in response to a salvation that's happened. So those two would be, would be good examples. They're, they're on the internet. You can find them. They're free. Um, you know, we've, we've made reference to the Westminster catechism. Um, but the Westminster confession is going to be, uh, a good expression of, um, reformed theology, which at the heart of it, we believe is an expression of biblical theology. Um, and, and the, the only weight that it carries or the only authority that it may have is in so much as that it properly reflects what the Bible teaches as a whole. So that is uh, going to wrap up this episode. Uh, thank you I guys for listening. If, Go if, ahead.
1: If you're looking for a modern book that, that really lays the foundation of Reformed Theology, What is Reformed Theology by R.C. Sproul is written mm-hmm. in a very easy uh, easy to read book. So yeah. I'd, I'd recommend that one. Yeah, that's
0: a good point. Uh, if, you're, if you're familiar with R.C. Sproul, he, he is a very well-known you know Bible teacher and author um, and a uh, recent—he died a few years ago—but a, but a very modern champion of Reformed theology. Um, and I know, Devin, both of us would say we've been greatly blessed by uh, the teaching of R.C. Sproul. So he's definitely a good resource. So that is going to wrap up this episode. Thank you guys for listening. Uh, hope that you turn into the tune into the next one as well. Thank you.